Welcome to Sleep Junkies. Let's take a trip back to 2002. Tom Cruise at the peak of his heartthrobness, starring in the sci-fi movie Minority Report. Set the scene. This is your typical dystopian near-future society. And anyway, everyone's tracked and surveilled through facial recognition. And so what happens to Tom when he's going for a stroll in the mall is everywhere around him, he's being targeted with personal ads just popping up on virtual billboards. Now, back in 2002, this was quite a shocking concept to imagine. But barely two decades later, this isn't sci-fi anymore. This is the new norm. Everyone accepts that wherever they go in their online world, we live little digital trails of information. And this data is used by advertisers to send us suggestions about holidays, pet food, whatever it is. How about we take it one step further? So instead of sending you an ad at the top of your Google search or something targeted to you in your Facebook feed, Imagine if targeted, personalised ads were sent to you, not while you're awake, but during your dreams. Well, drum roll, this crazy idea may be just around the corner. So recently, a bunch of research scientists signed an open letter talking about this new science of targeted dream incubation but also the ethical issues and all of the complications and downstream effects if corporations and governments were allowed to infiltrate our dreams we're talking to a professor who was one of the signatories on this open letter we had an awesome chat i hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as i did a couple of formalities talking about ads you'll never hear an ad read on this show we're completely independent we don't have any corporate sponsors so if you like these conversations you can support us by following us on social on twitter instagram facebook at sleep junkies go ahead leave a review on apple itunes that pushes us up the evil algorithm join our facebook group sleep junkies worldwide help us spread the gospel of sleep That's it for the intro. Let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm here on the other end of the line with Dr. Sarah Mednick. Hi, Sarah. Hi, how are you? Really good, thanks. Really good, and you? I'm great. And you're in New York on the East Coast today? That's right, that's right. And, uh... Little little intro. Dr. Mednick is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at University of California, Irvine. She's passionate about understanding how the brain works through her research into sleep and cognition. And I believe you've got a, a seven-bedroom sleep lab. It sounds very That's luxurious. Right. <laughs> yeah, very nice beds too. Great. And at UCI, and there you do research into discovering methods for boosting cognition through different interventions, including napping, brain stimulation, electricity, sound and light. And you're also an author. And in fact, uh, your first book, Take a Nap, 
Uh, it's actually one of the first ever books I've bought on sleep. In when oh, is I that start- right? Yeah, when I started my sleep uh, sort of journey, getting into this wow. whole thing right at the start of, of Sleep Junkies. Oh, I'm honoured. Yeah, so you kind of converted me into, um, what would I call myself? I'd call myself a nap evangelist. And, uh, <laughs> because... <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, I think I always liked the idea of napping before I got into sleep. But when I started reading about, you know, what you'd written in the book about your research and all that, I was like, right, that's, that's going to be my thing going forward now. And, <laughs> that's exciting. And, um, I love it. And so, you know, you're a bit of an expert on napping. And I, I can't remember where I read this, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that some of, you know, because you've done so much extensive research into the, the science of of napping, that uh, a lot of the methods that you use now are uh, almost like standardized ways of, of studying the subject. It, 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 did I get that right? Well, I think it actually is pretty true, surprisingly, um, because, and it seems so funny because it's like naps, like, is that a serious topic? But when I first started doing the research, I started working with Bob Stickgold right at the beginning of his career in sleep and memory. And he's somebody who now people sort of think is the, you know, father of the field of sleep and memory. Um, And he was working with nighttime sleep. Um, And he would test people at night and then have them sleep in the lab and then test them the next morning and compare those people to people who had been sleep deprived all night um, and showed, oh gosh, you know, people who slept better have, or people have slept at all actually perform better than people who didn't sleep and were sleep deprived all night. And there was sort of a problem there that's an obvious problem, um, which is the sleep deprivation. But then there was also other problems such as that that people were being tested in different groups at different times. And, and it, there was a lot of confusion around the controls. And so the nap, we decided to start doing nap research because it controlled a lot of those problems, which is, you know, if you just have somebody not nap, that's a better control than have somebody be sleep deprived. And then everybody's been testing at the same times. And so there was a lot of circadian controls. And so not only was it a much more convenient way to do sleep research because you didn't have to sit there watching somebody sleep all night. But it also was scientifically um, a better controlled uh, design. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's a real funny thing. And this is another... We've done um, a podcast before about power napping, but I think probably, you know, you be an even more authoritative person to speak to about the the larger subject of of napping um I'm not going to get into it now because this is a, this is a really fascinating subject but i do have one actual burning question that i've had for a long time and i i thought i'd be cheeky this is nothing to do about today's topic but i've, <laughs> I've actually got a, <laughs> a question um if i can ask about napping that no i haven't seen anywhere in any research at all Ooh, i'm excited and it's so, so what it is, uh, is specifically about power napping and, and sort of the, um, you know, the, the line is, you know, do a 20 minute, 30, 30 minute power nap before you go into, into deep sleep. Now, because I am, you know, pretty good at napping these days, you know, pretty good, <laughs> I've been practicing for a long time. Um, I find power naps really, really useful, but it's always puzzled me that, uh, how do you know when you've fallen asleep? So is mm. a 20 minute power nap actually is any of it sleep or is five minutes of it sleep you know because 
most people take 10, 15, 20 minutes to fall asleep. So my question, this sort of uh, to you, is um, is there anything to say that, you know, a power nap, is it actually sleep? Is it you're just sort of in a, a state before sleep? And if it, if there isn't actually any objective sleep, you know, that you'd measure uh, with an EEG, is that actually having the same benefit as a, a, a 20 minutes of objectively measured sleep? Rest. Yeah, I, it's a great question. And there actually is a research study that can speak to it, which is that there was a group um, who did super short naps and they looked at naps that had only stage one sleep, which is kind of that sleep that you're talking about, which is am I really asleep? This doesn't feel like sleep. I, I can hear what's going on around yeah. me and I can sort of tell the passage of time. Um, and then they had them sleep a little bit longer. We're talking around like five minutes, 10 minutes, right. like not really that long. And then they had the subject um, perform tasks before and after the nap to see which of the naps of these super short naps were effective. And the ones that had stage two sleep were the ones that showed... Um, uh, benefits for the cognitive tasks. And so it looks as though actually falling asleep is the stuff that is important. Um, and even though you may feel like you're not asleep um, in the early stages of sleep, once stage one, but also in stage two sleep, you can be kind of in and out. That's the sleep. That 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 sleep is the stuff that makes you actually feel better. So it, it isn't just laying down to rest, which is always great to do and just take a break. But um, it does seem like when you take a nap and you wake up and you feel better, it's because you've probably had at least some amount of stage two sleep. Brilliant, love it. I I I knew I'd get a a great answer from you. So. Uh... <laughs> Um, thank you for that, uh, sort of indulging me in that. Um, okay. So that's, that, you've also got another book coming out, which also sounds super interesting. So I'm going to have to, um, invite you back on the podcast and, um, I haven't got the full title, but you're using this, this, um, this phrase called down state, which is kind of taking yeah. the subject of sleep and kind of expanding it out even further. So do you, um, do you just want to give us the, um, elevator pitch for the book and when it, when it's out, we'll come back and, and talk all about it. I would love to. Yeah, it's called um, The Hidden Power of the Downstate. And I got the term downstate from sleep because one of the major events during sleep that we know about is called the slow wave. And the slow wave is this period of the deep restorative work that goes on during sleep. And it has, it's this one second event that has what's called an upstate, which is an excitatory period, and a downstate, which is the inhibitory period. And that inhibitory period where the whole brain is basically, you know, brain dead for just a half a second is the thing that has been shown to be the most restorative for um, our, you know, glymphatic system, clearing out the toxins. It's most important for our memory processes, the long-term memories. Um, so much of, you know, what we know about growth hormone increase, it all happens during that period where you have these slow waves. And then I realized as I was doing research that actually we have these upstates and downstates, these activation and rest periods through many different areas of our lives. We have them in the autonomic nervous system where we have the sympathetic, you know, fight or flight system that's matched with the parasympathetic um, rest and digest system and the importance of having a really good ratio of both the 
active upstate activities and that really deep restorative downstate um, activities is incredibly important for health and cognition and longevity. And once that idea of this upstates and downstates started sort of proliferating in my mind through all these different areas, I realized that we need to do more in our lives to enhance these downstates. And they don't just happen during sleep. They happen when we're awake. They happen when we're taking a break. They happen when we're in nature. They happen when we're exercising or like the, the, the cool, calm, relaxed feeling that we have after exercise. Those are all these restorative markers that we need to really be focused on, especially now that we live in a world where people are so stressed out, spending so much time in this upstate world, overworking ourselves and, you know, multitasking like crazy, that we need to really go back to our natural processes, these really natural cycles of upstates and downstates, and find ways of spending more time in the downstate. So that's really, it, it spans a whole bunch of different kinds of ways in which people can every day do daily practices of finding time in the downstate to restore themselves. I love it. I love it. Uh, and it, it's so, so timely now with um, a lot of people just changing their whole kind of um, outlook on life. You know, I'm, I'm talking about sort of post uh, COVID and people being stuck at home and people possibly not having to go back to the office and just reconsidering their whole lives and all of those things you talk about. I mean, you're talking from a, a biological perspective, but I guess you're also going to go into, you know, how we live our lives as well. And um, some countries going over to four day weeks recently. And uh, it sounds like a very timely subject to be talking about at the moment. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important, um, especially now, as you're saying that people are thinking about, are we going to go back to what we had before because that wasn't working and then this whole pandemic you know in some cases it was it was a time for even more stress and more piloting on for people but there was also a time where people got to really say well i'm going to be exercising during the day when i need to i'm going to wake up when i need to i'm going you know and starting to really set up their lives in a more sort of naturally rhythmic way and I think that that's something we need to hold on to, you know, and really say, okay, this was working for me. That other thing where I'm living somebody else's schedule isn't working for me. How can I integrate back into kind of whatever we call the real world, but do it in a really healthy way that, that really honors my own rhythms? Yeah, great, great. Well, there's so much doom and gloom at the moment, isn't there, with, with all this stuff? And it's good to have some some upsides to think about, isn't it? So, uh, so really looking forward to um, the the book. Uh, when's it when's it due out? It's coming out April twenty twenty two, so next okay. spring. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. Okay, well, we better get on with this uh, this subject today. <laughs> <I suppose>. um, <laughs> what was that we were talking about? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, getting back to the point. Okay, so this is. Uh, super interesting well, I always say everything is super interesting because I'm super interested in all these things I talk about but um so this subject popped up as many subjects do in my world of Twitter and just to give some some context for it this is about dreams and um by the way interesting you mentioned Bob Stickhold uh because he was actually the guest on the previous episode as well so I'm loving the, oh, the cool. connection there and there was a news story that went around about companies advertising in your dreams. And I, and I kind of looked into it. I thought, what the 
blazes is this and then it just kind of went down into this rabbit hole but essentially we've got this thing called dream incubation which has been around probably forever <laughs> thousands of years but it's the the idea of a third party suggesting content that you dream about now that wait in- third party who's the second party well, I say, uh, well, okay, second party. I'm confused right. by that. <laughs> I kind of use third party as in someone else. <laughs> Out, yeah, outside of you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Me, myself, and you. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, or, there's an external element to suggesting what happens in your dreams. Now, this has happened through sort of in uh, shamanic practices, uh, and I was doing a little bit of background reading and in some sort of religious circles but but now there's we've got technology and there's research doing this and so and so what happened is um there was this kind of a pr thing really basically but it was the the beers company molson coors everyone's heard of coors beer and essentially they made people dream about beer now that's a very crude uh, synopsis there but um do you want to open that up and say how on earth could that happen yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think that you're right to go back to the sort of the idea that we've had since the beginning of human beings being conscious that we have dreams is dreams are really sort of a mystery, right? They're a mysterious place that we don't quite have access to because we're asleep and there's this subconscious, unconscious processes at work. And um, so as you say, historically, you know, ancient Egypt and ancient Greece and Tibetan cultures, they've had practices where there's sort of, you know, spiritual infirmities or, or sort of mental health infirmities. And what they've created are these sleep temples where you go and you can do these rituals and create these, you know, um, spaces in yourself and think and, you know, have mantras related to certain kinds of thoughts and then sleep in these sleep temples and be, you know, helped or cleansed or um, have some, as you say, third party, second party come in and, um, you know, do something, interact with your dreams to come out, you know, on the other side of waking in some sort of better state. So you're right, this has been going on for centuries. Um, And it wasn't until, you know, even, even very recently for many, many years in sleep research, nobody thought that sleep, you know, after there's a certain research study that was done in the 20s, I believe, and or no, maybe it was the 60s. And the 20s is a, a different time of research. Um, but what they did is they um, tried to test whether if you give people information during sleep and, they, and you wake them up, do they remember it? Um, and there was absolutely no evidence that there was any learning during sleep in the way that they were doing it. And so all of these ideas that sleep could be used for any kind of useful cognitive process was kind of debunked. And then it was really looked on as being extremely um, kind of a no-no territory for research, like just for the um, hacks. Um, and 
then it wasn't until very recently that a group in Germany showed, well, actually, if you do it correctly, you can get into the de- into the dream world and you can interact with the sleeping brain. And in fact, when you wake up, you can have better memories based on what you did inside that person's dreams. Um, and so, and we can go into the details of all that, but I think that's really a crucial idea is that dream time, you know, whereas we thought maybe we, you know, it was exclusively for the individual and a private space. Actually, it's not a private space. You can come in there and, you know, manipulate what people are thinking and feeling and wake up, wake up and see performance differences. Um, and so that has then been used now um, by the Coors Company and also by other groups to do this um, targeted dream incubation. And it's you know, and, and, and what's funny is that word incubation, I looked up where that comes from, and it comes from this ancient world where they had these ideas that you're laying thoughts and you're laying ideas onto people while they're sleeping. And it's actually the term is called, to, incubation means to lay on. So there's, it's really interesting how sleep back in the day was medicalized um, and kind of made into something that was, you know, you could treat people during sleep. If I may just pause you there. Well, first off, I I just want to make this distinction between our sleep and our dreams. And and there's evidence to say that both of these things, now there are techniques to influence our memories in our wider sleep, but also specifically in our dreams. And we're just going to focus on the dream side of things, but there's this whole other area that, you know, we could talk about, which is um, targeted memory reactivation. Maybe we can come to that and explain how it's related, but we're specifically talking about dreams here. Yeah. I mean, you know, I can explain sort of what that targeted dream incubation, how it works. Would that also help? Well, let's get into that because this is the uh, the term being used. So what is targeted dream incubation and how specifically was it used in this, this course promotion? And then, yeah. and then maybe um, you could go on to um, talk about this open letter because you were one of the nearly 40 researchers sort of saying, well, hang on, uh, we need to um, take a step back before we go further down, <laughs> down, down yeah. this road. So there's a group at MIT, and they are working on this targeted dream incubation. And the way they've designed it, they actually have a um, a device they call Dormio. And it's based on actually Bob Stickgold's work, where he showed um, back in the 90s, um, that there's a phase, a, a stage of sleep, or it's basically stage one sleep, but it's called hypnagogic dream time. And it's a it's a time that's really not very well understood. But if you, when you're going to sleep and you have those, you know, you can sort of have these floating images in your mind um, and they're almost dreamlike, you know, you can actually have full, what feels like dreams very much like REM sleep, but the difference is you're not in REM sleep actually because you're not, you aren't paralyzed and that's a one of, and you don't have those um, rapid eye movements, but you do have dream-like experiences. Um, and that's also where you can have those sudden jerky wake up like you're falling off a, um, a cliff or something like that. So what he did is he used that time to have people, um, to see if people were, um, experiencing 
what they just were doing when they were awake. And he had people playing Tetris and um, then he'd wake them up in this hypnagogic state and say, what were you dreaming about? And people were always, you know, not always, but most of the time he would have people have reports of people dreaming about playing Tetris. And then across the night when he would wake them up in different phases of hypnagogic sleep, they would become more and more fanciful, but they would always have some Tetris element to them. And that showed that, you know, what we're doing in our daytime does enter our, our dreams. And that's a really important point. Then this MIT group said, well, can we manipulate what people are dreaming about? You know, so the way Bob did, but can we really specifically say, you know, so what they did is they have this device that you hold in your hands. And as you fall asleep, you lose muscle tone and your autonomic signals change. And when that happens, they give signals um, for you to think about a tree, think about a tree, think about a tree. And then once that, the um, once certain signals show that you're actually in that hypnagogic state, they wake you up and say, what were you dreaming about? And what they showed was pretty surprising is that um, there was an increase, 67% increase in reports about trees in people's sleep compared to when they didn't tell them to dream about sleep, about, about trees. So really saying, and that's the incubation, right? They're laying this idea of trees onto the sleeping person and the person then dreams about trees. Yep. So then, you know, then comes the, the opportunism around that, right, is is what what is possible to incubate? Um, you know, what, what's the extent of incubation in terms of could you dream about a product? You know, and then are you going to be more likely? And, and as you know, like familiarity breeds liking of things, and it increases people's desire to you know feel good about things. And so, the Coors Company had people watch a video about Coors that was in this kind of mountain stream, you know, fresh air, beautiful natural state, and it was all cores and and then they went to sleep. And then they would play the music across the night that was associated with this beautiful natural scene. And then they would wake people up and ask them what they were dreaming about. And in fact, sometimes they said they were dreaming about cores. And that's that's where this is going, right? That that's suddenly like, oh huh. When we're sleeping, anything could be played into our dreams, dream time, um, without us really having control of it because we're unconscious and we could be influenced. We could wake up in the morning and be influenced by this. Um, and so Bob uh, Stickle and his colleague, he just wrote a book about dreaming. Um, they thought this is something that we need to talk about. You know, we need to, th this is not just something that's like, oh, cool. You know, scientists, it's funny. I mean, I feel like scientists often are kind of, you know, a little small minded about what their research could possibly go um, and the implications of their research. And so we've been doing all this kind of dream incubation research, not thinking, oh, this is obviously has some potential to be used nefariously. And I think now that it suddenly got into the hands of corporations, there is an idea to say, wait a second. That's not what we, <laughs> that's not what we meant. Yeah. Um, maybe we should think more about the implications for people in the middle of their sleep to have um, 
companies give them information that is going to change their personal dream time um, and, you know, manipulate that dream time to then bias them towards thinking about a product. Um, and, when, and, and the important thing to know is that when people do this incubation, when they do even the targeted memory reactivation, um, like you talked about, people don't remember that this has happened to them. When they wake up, they don't remember the music being played. They don't remember the words being spoken. Because when you're sleeping, your hippocampus, which is the memory area, is not really strongly activating. And so you're not recording um, in, in a kind of episodic way. You're not remembering these memories, but they're influencing you when you wake up. So it's the unconsciousness of this that I think is the thing that is um well quite scary quite scary really and uh, quite, yeah. and um just to rewind slightly because I, I want people to kind of be clear about exactly what this um uh cause thing was so this was during the super bowl i think it was back in um february it wasn't uh sort of nefarious in the sense that they they did this to people and they didn't know about it it was like a voluntary opt-in thing and as no people were actually paid in beer to do it <laughs> i didn't know that i didn't know that yeah they um, were given a 12 pack oh well, there you go um and they were even given a 12 pack if their friends did it okay well that's beer companies for you but um, um but as you said they um the idea is you you consume some kind of content or you um so with uh the the tetris experiment it was actually during this um they were measuring this period before sleep but i think with the the coils thing they they didn't actually watch it at any specific time and i saw i actually watched the video and as you say it, they used these um sounds of like waterfalls and then cute little animations of beer and the idea was to sort of associate certain sounds with images of of beer and then when the people went to sleep, uh, there was a, a soundtrack which played for, for several hours. So it wasn't as precise as a scientific experiment, but it was, but still the people had to watch this content before, but during the night they were played an audio track, which, which triggered those memories that were incubated. So, so, so how, how exactly does that, uh, cause it, this is something I, I just out of curiosity, um, if you're not in this hip hypnagogic state and you're just in wakefulness and you consumes, you know, one of these videos that were designed to incubate dreams, um, what's the kind of distinction between that and then specifically doing it as per um, Bob Stickles, uh, like Tetris experiment? So this is kind of an amazing thing is that when you try to do, you know, this incubation during waking, it doesn't work. Um, if you, you know, if you are reminding people and you play the music during wake and that's supposed to cue the, you know, the association between this nice mountain stream and the nature with Coors, people don't show any association with Coors. It's just music being played. So there's something very special about sleep. Um, and, you know, as you say, they played it across the whole night. So it's not really known whether it's specific to dreams or not, but um, it's probably not necessarily specific to dreams. Um, it may just be reflected when people speak is is that it's like dreamlike, but 
but we have these kind of ability to be um, to be influenced across all stages of sleep. Um, a lot of the targeted memory reactivation actually goes on in non-REM sleep. So it's not really specific to REM sleep per se. Um, and so what's interesting is that we are more vulnerable to creating associations um, during sleep. And, you know, if you think about, well, why would that be? Why is waking a time where um, it's hard to influence us, but sleep is actually... We're, we're wide open. And you can imagine that during waking, we're making conscious decisions about what we want to think about. And we are, you know, we have agency during waking. And during sleep, there's a real lack of agency, you know, that we are sort of open um, books, so to speak, and able to have the book written in. Um, and, and even, you know, as I said, without our knowledge. Um, so that's, that's, that's a real surprising part of this is that um, the sleep period does seem to be a period where we are more vulnerable than wake period. So I actually think that the core's um, example is, a, is closer to targeted memory reactivation right. than it is to the dream incubation because with dream incubation, as you said, you're supposed to tell people to dream something during sleep. And that's not really what they did. You know, they reminded people of memories that they already encoded during wake. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. Um, so this group at MIT, they are obviously researching it for its uh, positive benefits <laughs> and right. uh, because that's what scientists do they don't set out to create evil things that's um, what <laughs> other, other groups of people do <laughs> um, and so there's a quote on their website and it says we envisage that nightmare treatments learning enhancements overnight therapy augmentation of creativity and overcoming addiction are all within the realm of possibility and then they say, yet there is also the potential for great peril, the threat of the capture, sale and colonization of the dreaming self in the form of data, which we'll get onto in a bit. But um, I just wondered if you could just say a few words about, um, you know, what scientists are thinking now. Um, you know, I prompted this discussion because of the the potential sort of scary size, but there are loads and loads of real potential benefits for this these types of techniques and, and this type of research, you know, overcoming addictions. There was a study about helping people to quit smoking. Can you just give us an overview of some of the, you know, the, the good the good things that this uh, targeted dream incubation could be useful? Yeah, and I think that that's, that's a really interesting um, aspect, you know, as, as you said, to distinguish when are you um, – reactivating memories that you already learned or when are you creating new associations and the thing about the the therapeutic aspect of it is that um that is more the idea that you could you know when you're in that vulnerable state of sleep and not able to you know use your frontal lobe to edit and say no i don't want to you know that's a traumatic memory i don't want to think about that you know once you get into sleep and your brain is a little bit less in control of itself can you have people um, think about say a traumatic memory 
and then infiltrate a positive um, thought around that memory. And that is the hope, right? To then wake up um, with, you know, the, a, a person who has a trauma has had an incubation experience that allows them to wake up and feel a little bit less traumatized, you know, a little bit more positive about that negative experience. Um, and the study that I think is really, you know, promising in that way is the study in smokers where they um, paired, so people who are smokers, uh, went to sleep and they paired the smell of rotting fish um, with the smell of cigarettes um, during the night. So they had them wear a cannula and they, and they, and they sent both rotting fish and cigarette smoke smell into the brain, um, into the nose of the sleeper. And you know, those are, it's, a, it's basically creating a noxious conditioning, right? A noxious conditioned response where you just think, Ugh, gross, whenever you smell, um, it's like, you know, the first time you really, <laughs> the first time you drink too much and you never want to have a screwdriver for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> it's that yeah. same idea that, that um, you know, that, that you just have an immediately conditioned response of disgust whenever you smell cigarettes after that. And what they found is that when people woke up, they didn't want to smoke as much, you know, and, and, and it lasted for actually a few days. So that's, that's exciting. You know, that, 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 that in some ways we, because we have so much self-control and self-regulation when we're awake, um, that's actually an impairment, you know, that actually impairs our ability to overcome, um, you know, think through and approach any of these um, habits or traumas that we have. And maybe sleep is actually this potentially more open space where we can um, bring in new ideas. And so there is, there is a very positive potential for this field. Did they study them on the long term or, or did they just, just I think give they up just or? looked at it like for a week. Right. But, you know, this is a, there's also a history with people who have, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder to yep. work with dreams, you know, to, you know, when you have that continuous, you know, for the past 40, 50, 60 years, that same horrible dream, can you get in there? And, you know, I remember one therapist was telling me that she has a person who just has this continuous nightmare of you know somebody either going through this field and then suddenly right in front of them is a person holding a machine gun right to their face and then she had the person turn the machine gun into you know so a clown who had a gun and then a flower came out of it and it was this like revelation right of just shifting it and you could only really do that by working with dreams um and so that's that's there's some real, you know, positive potential there. Yeah. Uh, and as you said, you know, it, well, in REM sleep, at least, we're kind of, we're locked out of our bodies, if you like, we're paralyzed, but we still have these sensory experiences. So this TDI, I'm calling it for short, targeted dream incubation, it works through all of our senses. So smells, you said sounds, I believe there's been some things done with uh, flashing lights, which you can still perceive, even if you're eyelids are you know if your eyes are shut uh touch tactile things speech mm-hmm. i mean it sounds almost limitless the ways that people could explore this however <laughs> to get on to the other side of this it's pretty obvious there's massive massive potential for misuse on this yeah. which is why the open letter 
was written. I just want to talk a little bit about some of the developments that are happening in the world of tech and sort of bring these two things together. Because it was actually you who um, mentioned in one of the articles I, I read and you were quoted. I mean, we're not um, pointing the finger at these tech companies and saying this is what they're doing. But the point is, we're talking about this TDI concept and people are saying, no, that's science fiction. Well, actually, we've got all of the technology here. And um, so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about Google and Amazon getting in the game and what they're doing with their sort of technology getting into the bedroom with these smart speaker devices. Mm -hmm. So several systems right now have developed sleep trackers in their um, smart speakers. So the Nest system and Amazon has a system. Um, and so what that means is that that they are totally able to track when you have fallen asleep. And if they can track when you've fallen asleep and they have the speaker right by your bed, they can send any information that they want. And if they know what you've been purchasing, which they do, and they know what music you like, which they do, the technology is right there. It is, as you say, it is not science fiction. It's just around the corner. That's where the idea of, uh, should we set up regulations? Because, you know, as we know, when subliminal messages started being used in people in movie theaters, there was a, an uproar and people said, I'm being manipulated and I don't want this. And so there was rules put in place where that became, you couldn't advertise subliminally. And so the idea is, you know, we need to probably think about what would be some legitimate regulations that could limit the infiltration of these smart devices and nest systems um, during sleep in order to, to safeguard, you know, if they're tracking you, and you're letting that happen, is it possible that we could have the corporations just be responsible for not sending information while people are unable to control their thoughts? And it kind of actually, to me, it really brings up, you know, in that kind of dystopian big brother way. I guess one of the things I find most disturbing about this whole thing is you know, yes, of course you're being manipulated. Yes. And that's bad. And yes, of course there's some weird capitalist, you know, scheme going on that is also bad. But I also feel like there's a certain robbing of people's privacy and dreams. You know, if you're somebody who's, who really is into dreams, um, and a lot of people are, this is your private space to work out the stuff that you need to work out, you know, that, that, that emotions are highly, you know, highly processed during dream time and our personal lives um, require dream time to process and kind of work through how we feel about things, what, you know, whatever traumas we've experienced, all of that stuff is very hard to process during waking and we need sleep. And there's even studies that show that the sleep you have right after an emotionally charged event can predict how you're feeling about that experience later on, like days later, right? So what that means is if, if we're just willing to let people come in and sort of take over our sleep, there's a cost to that, which is what did we let go of? There's only 24 hours in the day and there's only so much sleep that we have. So if you let Coors take your dream time up, 
then when are you going to be doing that important work that was processing whatever horrible thing happened to you that day or whatever wonderful thing happened to you that day? I feel like that there's a certain there's a certain kind of uh, letting go of our own freedom to process our life experiences if we let our dream time be taken up by you know whatever corporate America wants us to think about. I'm 100%, 100% in agreement with you because, I mean, a lot of this sounds quite geeky and quite technical and we're talking about science and we're talking about biology and technology and all that kind of stuff. But I totally agree that the implications are much, much wider. And um, are you familiar with this, um, this work and this term of surveillance capitalism? Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of see this idea of hijacking, monetizing our sleep and our dreams is a very archetypal version of what's been termed surveillance capitalism. So the author describes this uh, term surveillance capitalism, the unilateral claiming of private human experience as free raw material for translation into behavioral data. That's the top level but then obviously if you've got someone's behavioral data, then you can monetize that and say, you know, someone's looking at beer commercials, so we're going to sell them beer adverts. But it's much, much wider than that. She says that uh, surveillance capitalism denies us our right to the future tense, which uh, which is kind of what you're talking about, really. Because yeah. it's not necessarily just passively sending us, you know, adverts in our sleep or whatever. It's It's behavior modification. Well, it's the actions of a totalitarian system to be, you know, really extreme. But it's, you know, it's if you want people to believe certain things, you tell them what to believe. And if you want them to do that without argument, you do it in their sleep. So, it, you know, it's beyond the market, right? It's it can there's many systems of government now that are not interested in you thinking your own thoughts, you know, and they're active now in the world. And if that's something that we are willing to give up, then we're giving up one of the things that I think Americans think of themselves as as having, right, which is kind of freedom of speech and freedom of thought. And if you give that up, those are some basic principles that you lose and, and those systems win. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we're talking about this through... Um a lens of, you know, we've got some research and we've got some tech companies who want to get in the sleep market. So, you know, they might be able to monetize it. Um, but totally, as you say, you know, we can go another step and say, well, what about this horrible totalitarian regime and they want to plant ideas in people's heads while they sleep? Uh, we know there's, um, you know, collusion and agreements between big tech companies and and governments all around the world. So, I mean, we're not building conspiracies here, but we're saying that all of the pieces are in place if people wanted to do that. Well, they're already happening in Wake, that Facebook has already played into it, that social media has already played into false information, right? So we're already sort of having to constantly navigate, like, is what I'm reading true or not, right? But what if yep. we don't have the ability to ask ourselves, is this true? And that's yep. the space of sleep, right? We don't have that ability. Exactly. I mean, that, that, that's where I was going. We have this precedent. And and let's face it, these, um, you know, all the big tech companies, they've got a absolutely appalling, appalling record 
on privacy and respecting mm-hmm. people's rights. And, you know, I was just going, I was just going through the list and, you know, pretty much everything that Google has done. I remember when they started scanning books, you know, for Google books, they were just going into libraries and just scanning things without consent. And then they got into trouble for that. Google Street View, they were going around and sniffing people's Wi-Fi connections and harvesting all this data. And they got in trouble for that. Uh, they got fined. 50 or 70 million for breaking GDPR rules. Um, Facebook doing all these mass psychological experiments without telling anyone. They've not got a good track record. So we we do have to be a little bit suspicious when something as sci-fi and potentially nefarious as uh, um, marketing stuff in our sleep uh, comes around. So I'm, you know, I, I, I'm suspicious. <laughs> Yeah, I just I, I think that it's not something you know. It, there's there's so many things that that are technological, what we call advances, that you suddenly find are being used um, in ways that you just didn't, you would never have imagined, um, and that you would never have wanted. Um, and that's, of course, in the basic case, you know, most people are. You know, we're, you know, it's, it's not like oh, all people are bad and, and they just want to, you know, take over your mind. But I do think that there are some really, you know, self-interested governments, self-interested corporations. And in those cases, do you leave, you know, your well-being and your creativity and your self-actualization abilities to in the hands of somebody else? Or do you make sure that you know, that you set limits on the outer ranges of what is legal and okay. There are some things like, okay, you know, in some ways, who cares? But it's the outer ranges of things that I think you really have to think about when you're setting up these regulations. Yeah, and I guess the the first step is to just have the conversations. Uh, We're nearly on our our time slot here. I just wanted to um, make a broad point on this, which has a a wider sort of uh, discussion around it. But just talking about, in general, altering our dream states, you know, we could talk about altering our sleep states as well. Um, Some people use this term dream engineering, sleep engineering. Personally, I don't like the idea of engineering anything uh, sort of biological <laughs> like that, but I understand. Nature I understand knows people, better. <laughs> well, there you go. So I guess I have a general thought around engineering us. Um, well, I, I actually don't think I believe so much in the engineering idea anymore. I think I used to because, you know, my book was about, you know, can you basically, can you engineer your nap to sort of, you know, have better long-term memory or better, you know, creativity or better perceptions and, you know, and, and just by what type of sleep you were having. And, and I think of it in, I think in actuality, you can show these changes with having specific sleep stages because we've shown that in the lab over and over again. And, you know, you really can engineer it to a certain extent, but I think the, the, the general idea that we can get better than the natural state it's sort of one of those ideas that that you can always be better right and 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 i and i think in general if you are healthy and you are you know have good sleep and you have good eating habits and you're exercising well and you're really doing the basics of you know the 101 of good health you're at the top of your game and there's very little increases that can be made that you will really feel that much of. 
so so that's just a general idea of like you know when we test college students who are you know even though they're probably drinking too much and not sleeping enough they're mm-hmm. actually really at the top the prime of their physical health and we don't really see such big changes um, when we try to do this engineering but I do think in cases where we're talking about aging, um, where there's even pathological aging levels of sort of memory deficits, or in situations where there is, you know, some deficit, maybe a sleep deficit, a health deficit. I think in those cases, there is an argument to be made that if, you know, can we figure out what is the thing that is falling apart? Is it, you know, is it some, you know, hippocampal function? So, so some memory function, is that the thing that this disease or this brain state is suffering from? Well, what can we do to engineer sleep so that they get more of this stuff that they're lacking so that their memories get better? So in that ways, I think if you're doing all the best things possible and you're living a healthy life, engineering is kind of, it doesn't make any sense. But I do think in cases of deficit, um, it is a reasonable idea to think about, um, well, this is, you know, we've discovered the mechanism that's falling apart with aging. You know, is it the autonomic nervous system? Is it the slow waves that we, we stop having slow waves, or maybe the frontal lobe starts to shut down? What are the things that atrophy that if we engineer sleep, um, to bias the brain to do more of those things that it needs, can we keep or maintain our memory longer? I think that that's the distinction I would like to draw in terms of like the engineering issue. I think it's about semantics as well, because when you talk about engineering, any sort of biological mechanism, it, it kind of speaks to this idea of sort of transhumanism, where we want to transcend nature transcend our own biology and i i don't like that idea but i I think maybe something like optimization is is a is a better word because optimal is more sort of in balance and that goes back to you know the idea that nature knows best as well yeah yeah um super interesting topic to talk about i hope it's been a little bit bleak and a little bit sort of (laughs) you know dystopic this topic um so i hope we've enlightened some people it hasn't been too too depressing knowledge will set you free yeah yeah that's that's kind of the idea um where can people find out more about what you're doing so you've got your own website yeah i have a website for myself sarahmednick.com and then i have a sleep lab website which is sleepandcognitionlab.com and we always post all of our papers and i'm at twitter Sarah underscore Mednick. Um, and I'm often on Twitter tweeting whatever we're doing in the lab or whatever I'm thinking about. So I'm happy to check in with people there too. Fantastic. Well, thanks for being so generous with your time and your knowledge. We'll no doubt, well, we've got to catch up when the book is out. I love that. Yeah. It's been really fun talking. Yeah, likewise. All right, take care. Have a great day. Okay. You've been listening to the Sleep Junkies podcast. I'm Jeff Mann. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Sleep well and see you on the next one.